Hey everyone, do you ever want to learn about economics, but you worry you missed your chance because you've kissed someone? Today's book is Freakonomics by Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner. I wonder if they're related. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and I'd wanted to read this book ever since I saw the cover of it, which shows an apple that's been cut, and it's an orange on the inside. That's all. (laughs) And I'm David Vance. I came up with the way to get Kellen to read econ books. Make him think it's about food. Freakonomics discusses what economics can teach us about normal situations, like buying a house or naming your child. My dad studied economics long enough to learn that the market demanded he be a doctor. And this is The Book Pile. Quick reminder to please rate and review The Book Pile, or as we say in economics, supply us with ratings, because we demand it. So in our last podcast episode... Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. We invited you to email us about a subject that you're an expert in that you can't stand how it's portrayed in movies. We've chosen our favorite three. First, Amy says that her mother is a nurse. She says she can't stand watching medical shows, especially when there is a birth. The whole time, my mom would get angry because the doctors and nurses were doing everything wrong. The newborn baby would come out as a four-month-old, and there was (laughs) never a big enough mess. That resonates with me, even as like a a non-medical person. (laughs) It does seem that babies are always... I guess as a guy who's seen a a couple of babies born um, involuntarily. Now, as a person who's seen... uh, I like that the involuntarily applies to both you and the baby. (laughs) Uh, We got an email from Whitney who says, uh, I've been an esthetician for about four years, and every time I see a waxing scene on TV, I cringe because I never see gloves being used. They dip the contaminated stick back into the wax, and they'll just stick a strip right in the middle of a patch of hair, usually in the wrong direction. This one is so fun to me because it shows, like you and I, Dave, were talking about the piano, that there are these things that most people won't notice, but Mm. it also shows how inaccurately I think most things are shown in most movies. But since Mm. all of us can't be experts in all things Movies in general are believable to us because we don't know a lot of stuff. Sure. Have you ever uh, have you ever been waxed, Dave? Um. Wait, you have to think about I it. I don't think so. <laughs> well, I know I haven't been waxed, but in high school, as a joke, when we went to state in track, all the guys shaved their right leg and the girls grew out their left legs. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Did the wind resistance make you run in circles? <laughs> But I'm trying to think if I've ever. I don't wait think when I've they ever saw you. Legs. When they saw you, was was everyone like Dave? You were just supposed to shave one leg. <laughs> I actually, for a not hairy guy, I have surprisingly hairy legs. Oh, it's like a lustrous mane. <laughs> <laughs> like at the there, at the at the beach, you look like Mister Tumnus. There have been. <laughs> Eric says, as an IT engineer, every single hacking scene is absolutely atrocious. <laughs> he, he brings up these moments where the uh, computer expert in the movie is like rapidly typing and all these like pop-ups are coming up like as if they're fighting them in real time. And he sent me, uh, <laughs> he sent us a clip, this great clip from NCIS from like 10 years ago, where these all these pop-ups are 
uh, coming up on the screen and the computer tech, she's scrambling so hard that she asks for help. So another guy joins her and both of them are typing away on the same keyboard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it would take an unbelievable amount of skill because you would have to be (laughs) finishing the other person's like, you're typing words (laughs) together. Oh, that's amazing. So those are uh, those are great. We loved. Sorry we couldn't get to everyone's emails, but those were um, the, so much fun. Okay, and without further ado, here are our favorite lessons from Freakonomics. Number one, most of us are terrible at assessing risk. Go for Australia first. The- <laughs> I know South America can seem sexy. Africa can seem sexy. Australia, statistically, is your best bet. For what? For risk. Oh. <laughs> Dave has never lost a game. Speaking oh, I of have. Which, I've just never lost to my family. I know. It just absolute phrases are just more compelling, even when they're not true. <laughs> the biggest fight I ever had with my roommate, Adam, was over a game of risk, but we can go into it in a different episode. <laughs> no, I want to know what happened. What happened? So we're playing risk a few years ago, and Adam and I have this alliance that he won't attack me in a certain country. And then... He breaks that alliance a turn early and attacks me. And I got so mad that then he just attacked me even further, even though it was to the detriment of both of us. I think I was mad at him for like a week. And he was like, it's just a game. It doesn't matter that I lied. And I was like, I cannot believe you would lie to me over something as dumb as this game. (laughs) I love, though, that both of you were basically pulling the it's just a game card. Uh huh. Because <laughs> you were saying something as dumb as this game, and he was saying it's just a game. By the way, there are few things as satisfying as saying it's just a game to people who take a certain game very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be the ESPN reporter who says that. <laughs> LeBron just won it all with the Cavs. I'm like, yeah, it's just a game, though, right? <laughs> So, Dave, what's something that you're afraid of, other than learning how to play the guitar? Like, what, what is an actual fear that you have? I often have a premonition that I'm either going to die in a car accident or by drowning. I always think it's dumb, like in movies, when they're like, you know what, you're afraid, you know, when, the, when someone's given a pep talk, and the wise person is like, you know what you're afraid of is success. <laughs> You're afraid of succeeding. It, like, it never makes sense to me. It's like, you're afraid that you could have a great life and make a ton of money, and that's real scary. You're afraid that you love this beautiful person <laughs> yes. and that they love you back. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I'm afraid of spiders, mm-hmm. and um, I have a, a joke about it that I tell if you check out my Comedy Central clip on YouTube. Uh, a true story about a, a spider in a car and how I uh, drove almost completely off of a freeway because of it. So I was looking up uh, I was looking up the death rates for certain things and I found out on this list that was supposed to make you feel better about things for people who have irrational fears of being struck by lightning or apparently getting bit by spiders. And on the list it said that you are 20 times more likely to get killed by a cow but all that does is make me 20 times more scared of cows. <laughs> 
So I love the focus group they tested that on where they're trying to assuage everybody's fears. And someone's like, I'm scared of cancer, diabetes, and heart disease. And they're like, well. (laughs) So here's some other interesting numbers that show sort of the the disparity between what the, the authors of the book say the risks that scare people versus the risks that actually kill people. Those are two mm-hmm. very different things, what we uh, instinctively fear and what we actually should be afraid of. Um, so, the death rate of skydiving is – your chances of dying while skydiving is are one in a hundred. I shouldn't say while skydiving. It, it's when you're done skydiving, I guess, are one in a hundred. <laughs> So it, when you when you land the dive, <laughs> when the sky is no longer involved, <laughs> so one in a hundred thousand versus canoeing, which is one in ten thousand. It's just it's so interesting that wow that difference because if you were <laughs> if you were to ask me like would you rather go skydiving or canoeing, I would say well first of all I'd be like is there a third option, <laughs> but I would definitely think to choose canoeing because you can't I mean it's rare to reach terminal velocity you know in a kayak unless you go <laughs> off a waterfall so what's crazier than that uh, base jumping and this includes this number has gone up since the invention of wingsuit diving oh, is one. One in 60. What? One in 60 times? One in 60 times. Oh my gosh. I watched a documentary on it and it's like really depressing because every every prominent wingsuit jumper knows multiple people who have died. Like that's how... That's how dangerous it is. And I just want to know how many, this is like a serious concern, how many deaths have been caused because of the, the con, I'm going to call it content producing pressure of a GoPro camera. I want to know how fewer wings, wingsuit jumps would even occur if GoPros didn't exist, you know, because so much of that. It's for the the pursuit of views on YouTube. It's crazy. So in all of these statistics, there was one because it's saying like skydiving, canoeing, base jumping, sharks, lightning. And then one just says in Nepal, which is one like, in 167. Just being in Nepal? It sounds like it means just being in Nepal, but I'm assuming that it means climbing Everest or a similar oh. mountain. <laughs> The authors in the book, they bring up this fictional scenario. Um, Molly is a concerned parent, and her daughter has two friends. One of the friend's parents has a pool. The other parents own handguns. So Molly is more likely to have her daughter play at the friend's house who has a pool versus the one with guns. But if you bring up the statistics, death by swimming pool, the rate is 1 in 11,000. Whereas the chances that a child is going to die by a gunshot are one in a million. And this isn't, I mean, that's a difference of a hundred. And and this is when there's a pool in the house or a gun in the house, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. And this isn't, this isn't championing gun owners. It's not demonizing people who own a pool. It's just to bring up the reality of what we're afraid of um, versus, you know, emotionally. Yeah, uh, Kahneman and Tversky talk about what's called the availability heuristic, which is where the more easily we can imagine an event 
or the more easily we can call it to memory, the more prevalent we think it is. So for instance, that explains why people, they're often much more scared of flying than they are of car crash deaths because they can imagine so many of these famous like plane accident stories, even though dying in a car accident per mile traveled is much more likely. Uh, another comparison um, dovetailing with that is that like the fear of dying on a roller coaster, like I know people who are afraid to go on a roller coaster, your chances of dying on one are one in 750 million. Wow. And they've all happened on It's a Small World. <laughs> and that's, that's just uh, self-inflicted. <laughs> I had a um, film professor who, on Pirates, he got out of the boat and pretended to be one of the attractions. Oh, no. <laughs> the animatronics are amazing. <laughs> so, chances, your chances of dying on a roller coaster are 1 in 750 million versus being a lumberjack, which is statistically the most dangerous job per capita, has the most deaths per capita of any job in the United States. The death rate of a lumberjack is 1 in 600. Wow. So I guess the point is, don't be afraid to go on a roller coaster unless the roller coaster is called the Distracted Lumberjack. (laughs) (laughs) So this affects us, and it also affects us broadly. It affects, uh, because of the way that it affects legislation, if you consider um, a terrorist attack versus heart disease, which do you think Congress is going to act on? Death by terrorists is, is infinitesimally smaller Right. Thing you're you're the odds of dying by heart disease, which is something crazy like one in four. But a terrorist attack is immediate, and heart disease can take decades. So again, it's this the the risk factor. It isn't even taken into consideration. It's just the this emotional response to what can I visualize happening right now like you were saying, right. versus it's, it's much harder to comprehend a slow buildup of plaque in your arteries over a lifetime. <laughs> no, it's very much that availability heuristic. We give attention to the things that are flashy and memorable rather than the things that are prevalent. So how do we make heart disease flashy and memorable? <laughs> So like maybe maybe if every time someone had a heart attack like the dark mark appeared above their house <laughs> <laughs> So for me, a takeaway from this is that we can take inventory of the precautions we take and the precautions we maybe we don't and make changes based on actual research and not just our very poor instincts. For example, you might be afraid of ghosts. So you get a nightlight for your hallway, but at the same time, you own a pool, but you have no safety precautions around it. Like, it's just a quick trip to Google to find that the death rate of ghosts is zero, and the pool one is not. So I think, by definition, the death rate of ghosts is 100%. <laughs> They're not ghosts because things are going particularly well in the health department. <laughs> I meant... <laughs> I meant the death rate of ghost attacks. Okay. I uh but I I should have expected being corrected on something that isn't real in the first place coming from you, Dave. <laughs> so my brother-in-law is an ER doctor and one time I asked him if there was a recurring injury that he sees or like a recurring cause and he said that he sees trampoline victims pretty often. Yeah, my dad and said that too. We get it, Dave. Your dad's a doctor. <laughs> 
He doesn't see him at the mansion. He sees them at the office. <laughs> I just realized that I said trampoline victims, which which makes it sound like the trampoline is like sneaking into the house at night and <laughs> hurting people. Like you hear something in your room and you look up and it's the trampoline, like the shadow crosses over your bed. <laughs> so my friend had a trampoline growing up. And I think actually the biggest risk of having a trampoline is it's not for the people who own it. It's for the neighbor kids who come over and are way too confident right away. Because <laughs> like two of the kids in our neighborhood broke their arms flying off of it. And for me, bouncing on a trampoline was the only time in my life that I have ever just need myself in the face. <laughs> but also, I don't know about you, but like trampolines, when I, when I was growing up, they, they had nothing. There's like the only, no one thought to put them like at ground level. They made them like higher than the backyard fence. And there was no protective net around the trampoline. The only thing any of them ever had was the, you remember the sort of pathetic curved padding on the springs <laughs> yeah we surrounded ours with implanted spears and like normandy style beach obstacles <laughs> so there's this book called doing good better that talks about measuring risk of death in what's called micromorts which is a one in a million chance of dying and here are some of my favorites doing ecstasy one micromort going to space 17,000 micromorts so a 1.7% chance of dying and then this one's from me uh <laughs> kellen i want to push back against your lumberjack claim there is one job that historically has 180,000 micromorts so an 18% chance of dying on the job hmm. any any guess what it is uh I, i'm guessing it's uh something that has to do with driving a vehicle President of the United States. Oh. <laughs> there have been 45, if you count Grover Cleveland once, and eight have died on the job. And four got murdered. Wow. So you're saying that's worse than being a lumberjack? <laughs> I just, I've just always thought it's weird that parents tell their kids to go into such a dangerous profession. Like, you'd never be like, you can be a coal miner in an unregulated mine. You know what I mean? When you tell kids <laughs> yes. to dream big. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, you know what you could become? Something where one in ten get murdered. <laughs> How come all the presidents who get assassinated, hear me out on this, are men? <laughs> the comparison isn't fair because I didn't bring up the statistic of like how many lumberjacks are also assassinated. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number two. Beware perverse incentives. So they start by telling this crazy story about a realtor who sabotages her own client. So a man calls this realtor. Uh, and one trick to make this story more interesting is imagine they're both super hot. <laughs> so the, this beautiful man calls this sexy realtor and he wants to buy a house listed at about 470K and he was going to offer 450, but he calls the realtor and he says, okay, what's the lowest price the owner would accept? And at first she won't tell him. She says that would be this huge violation of ethics. But at the end of the call, she says, my client is willing to sell this house for a lot less than you might think. So she totally sells out her client. And because of that, now this man comes back and he just totally lowballs. He ends up paying $20,000 less than he was willing to offer for the house. The realtor essentially lost her client $20,000 or more. And what's happening here is a perverse incentive. So you would think the realtor makes the most money if she sells your house for the highest price because she gets 1.5% of that. But the authors say, no, she makes the most money if she sells a lot of houses fast, 
even if she has to cut the price. So when you lost $20,000, she only lost $300. That means that it's kind of worth it to her to take that loss as long as she sells more houses. And you actually see this when realtors sell their own homes. So they keep them on the market 10 days longer and they sell for up to 3% more. So for a $300,000 house, that's about $10,000 more. I Googled what you can buy with $10,000. That's 200,000 pesos. (laughs) Speaking of $10,000, that was my income last year when all of my shows were canceled because of COVID. (laughs) So you can see these kinds of perverse incentives everywhere. So in Congress, in both parties, they have an incentive to make money on insider trading. And there are studies showing that Congress in both parties has historically made significantly more in the stock market than normal people do, especially in the Senate. And lately, there's a newer law called the Stock Act fighting that. But this is why people say, okay, make them do a blind trust where they don't know what they own. Take away the incentive to insider trade. Now, some listeners might not care about this issue specifically, but there's something that might make you care. Imagine Congress was not hot. If they weren't hot, you would be so much more (laughs) mad about this. (laughs) Last one. Here's a perverse incentive from the big show. Oh, go ahead. As you're considering reading this, if you haven't read this book and you're considering reading it, just keep in mind that if you do hold strong opinions about how uncorrupt government is, this book, you're not going to like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the famously popular Congress. Watch out, America. This book comes for your sacred cow, Congress. (laughs) Anyway, takeaway for me is we should all be on the lookout for perverse incentives in our lives because it's so easy to fall into them. All right, number three, look out for asymmetries of information. So the authors bring up how you don't think of a, a realtor as someone who uses their access to information as fear. Selling a house doesn't seem like a a fearful prospect. But when you sell a house, you are afraid of two things. You're afraid of not selling it for enough money. And you're also afraid that if you charge too much, that you're not going to sell it at all. So experts, experts depend on the fact that you don't have the information that they do. This comes from a chapter in the book called How is the Clue How is the Ku Klux Klan like a group of real estate agents? <laughs> The chapter was sponsored by Zillow. <laughs> so, so obviously that's a very extreme headline, but the point that he's making is that asymmetries of information are important in both of those contexts. So in the realtor example we already discussed, the realtor is only able to act on those perverse incentives because he or she knows things that the homeowner doesn't quite know. And in a similar way, the book talks about how the KKK thrived on a sort of secrecy, how it had secret handshakes and secret codes and things like that. So a little bit of context on the Klan. I don't think most people realize the hugeness of the Klan. In the 1920s, there were up to 8 million Klan members, which is just an incredibly high number. Woodrow Wilson openly praised them. In 1991, David Duke, the former Grand Wizard, was the Republican nominee for governor in Louisiana. He ran against a super corrupt Democrat, so there were bumper stickers that said, vote for the crook, it's important. There were other bumper stickers that said, choose the lizard, not the wizard, which sounds like the love triangle in like a Twilight knockoff. (laughs) Anyway, so, so all this to say, you had... You have this enormous, terrible organization predicated on this secrecy, 
And so these two men named Stetson Kennedy and John Brown went undercover infiltrating the Klan until they knew all of the secret codes, all of basically all of the secret rituals, and then they got Superman, the radio show, to broadcast them nationally as part of the Superman (laughs) storylines. So all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this huge organization predicated on secrecy had its secrets told to virtually every little kid in the United States. And following that moment, the Klan membership started to decline sharply. Now, it's hard to say if that was the cause, if it was the primary cause, a contributing factor, if it was just random. But the economists essentially make the argument that taking away the secrecy, taking away that that asymmetry of information was very damaging to the Klan. All right, number four, it's hard to be feared when you're made ridiculous. So I, I think of this as kind of the Bogart principle. So like we were saying earlier, the KKK had a very hard time continuing to seem mysterious once every kid in the country listening to Superman knew all of their secret codes. And you see a similar strategy employed against a lot of dictators where as soon as they're made ridiculous, it's harder for them to be feared. So in 1988, Chile was super ungrateful and they ousted Pinochet, the dictator we gave them. And comedy (laughs) was a big part of the TV campaign they used to oust him. Um, Another one from Originals. In Serbia, to undercut the dictator Milosevic, they just made fun of him a lot. So for a birthday present, they mailed him a one-way ticket to The Hog to be tried for his crimes. They made a commercial (laughs) where a woman's trying to get a, a stain out of a shirt and you look at the stain and it's Milosevic's face. They would tell people downtown to look in a telescope to see the waning moon. And then you look and it's also just his face waning. (laughs) Another one in Syria, the rebels would write freedom on a bunch of ping pong balls and dump them in the town square. And you think the trick is they're spreading a message of freedom. But the real trick is the police then show up and have to pick up all these ping pong balls and they just look so stupid. So there's there's a great uh, and this again is for the uh, the Back to the Future episode, the book about the making of the Back to the Future trilogy that I'm super excited about. This was a move that Robert Zemeckis used when an executive producer, Sid Sheinberg, this guy did not get the title Back to the Future, like it it didn't make sense to him, even though clearly like once you see the movie it it does make sense, but he he was just like he sounded. He sounded like an ignorant YouTube comment. That's like, how do you go back to the future? You know. <laughs> so he sent in uh, this note, and Robert Zemeckis at the time didn't have any clout, but he also didn't want to offend this producer. So the way that he approached it was when he got this note saying that they needed to change Back to the Future to Spaceman from Pluto which is referencing just like a a 10 second portion of the whole movie. Robert Zemeckis he he got the note and he wrote he wrote Sin Scheinberg back and he said, "Thank you so much for the joke note of changing the name to the movie. Um the cast and crew, we had a great laugh about it." <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want to backtrack and be like, no, seriously. And so that's how uh, they're able to, to move forward. I love that it's like, that's very carrot and stick, where if you go along with this, your status increases in our eyes. And also if you go against it, your status decreases. It's like Plata Oplomo, where drug dealers are like, if you go along, you'll get bribes. If you refuse us, we will kill you. <laughs> So all this to say, if you want someone to be less feared, it may be helpful to make them ridiculous in some way. All right, random facts. 
Hold on. I I, oh, I think it's <laughs> I think it's funny that you just assumed that everyone listening knew what a bogart is. <laughs> I want to give the benefit of the doubt to to most people, but for those who don't, it's a Harry Potter reference and it's the name of the hat that sorts people into the different houses. Oh, you're messing with me. You're trying to get I am. me. <laughs> No, a Bogart is the star of Casablanca. <laughs> All right, random facts. So one of the studies the economist did found that sumo wrestlers seem to be throwing matches. So uh, apparently the sumo wrestling community is really tight-knit. And there's evidence that in a match, if one of the wrestlers really needs the win so he doesn't get demoted, the other wrestler will let him win. And this finding in Japan has been incredibly controversial. But I read it and I was like, that's so sweet. <laughs> like, isn't there just something a little beautiful about that? It is funny to me, too, because I, I found it um, just thinking over sumo wrestling as I was uh, reading this book. It seems so silly that it's just like uh, one person trying to push the other one out of a circle. But then they could just as well break down every sport that we have. Sure. Basketball is throwing a sphere into a circle. <laughs> like baseball is hitting a circle with a line. Soccer is boring. Like you can just pick <laughs> apart every one of these. Whoa, whoa, whoa. In this podcast, we mock baseball. <laughs> it's sorry. Soccer is kicking a circle into a rectangle. <laughs> you got to respect the geometry. <laughs> There's a fascinating chapter or two in the book that's all about whether or not the name you give your child will affect the outcome of their future. So a guy named Robert Lane, uh, who lived in Harlem in the 1950s, he had uh, he named one of his kids Winner, and then he named his next son Loser. No way. A loser went on to become a detective and then promoted to sergeant for the NYPD. Uh, most of his friends just called him Lou. Uh, <laughs> and Winner went on to commit more than 30 crimes. <laughs> he said that he didn't love his son Loser any less, but it was just <laughs> sort of like a self-implemented social experiment. My wife and I didn't name our second son for the first five weeks of his life and if you want to blow people's minds like you want to see people melt down tell them that your baby doesn't have a name like it's unbelievable but what's what's crazier to me is that we we were taking our time with this thing that could you know this name he's gonna have for the rest of his life and we wanted to get a sense of like uh, of not only who he was and what he looked like, but we also just wanted to make uh, what we thought was a good decision. What's crazier to me are the people who will wait to name their dog they're adopting until they see what it looks like. <laughs> so it can be like Snowflake, a Bandit, but they know what they're going to name their child before they even conceive. <laughs> I found once this notebook that my parents had written of them brainstorming potential baby names, like shortly mm -hmm. after they got married. And my mom's were the ones we ended up using mostly. My dad's were things like Matthew Mark Vance, Luke John Vance, 
Mary woman at the well vans. <laughs> so where does your name, Dave, where did that come from? David, does that David, so I'm David and my brother is Jonathan and my mom named us that so we would be best friends. And then my middle name is Lillian Quist after my mom's maiden name. Wow. But that's not in any of my passwords. So don't try it. <laughs> my wife's middle name is Morningstar, which is what? her mother's maiden name. Was her mom is- an elf? It's such a cool name, um, yeah. but it, it comes from Germany. So I looked it up, and it it's actually a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so funny because isn't that a great way to assassinate your enemies? Hey, want to see my morning star? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, because it it does sound like this this fantastical. It evokes this this imagery of like the last remaining star at twilight, but it's actually just a really spiky club. <laughs> it's like the Patriot missile. <laughs> so, an, an, another random fact. So, the subtitle of the book is called "A Rogue Economist Explores the Hidden Side of Everything," and I think it's really funny. Because calling yourself a rogue implies that when you rebel, we care. <laughs> like you can you can be a rogue spy, you can be a rogue soldier. No one's like, oh no, that economist is studying sumo wrestlers. Get him back in line. <laughs> I don't get it though, because I the I think the subtitle of the book needs to be you wanna find out how the inside of this apple is an orange. <laughs> Yeah, they really did leave that as a cliffhanger. Speaking of oranges, they go through all these crazy names, all the crazy things that people have named their kids. And two of them were orange jello and lemon jello. But <laughs> the mom defended the name, saying that they were pronounced orangelo and lemangelo. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of cocaine, um, <laughs> I learned a lot about cocaine from this book. There's this fascinating chapter. I already on, knew it. On how they <laughs> they gained access to a notebook uh, that had a detailed transaction history of a drug selling gang over the last over over the span of two or three years. But something that I thought was interesting and funny to me is that the price in cocaine started to drop because of the production of crack, which if you read the book, you'll find out the difference in why one is cheaper than the other. So because the the price started dropping, the drug-related murders also started to drop because suddenly it wasn't worth killing someone to steal their crack turf or (laughs) risking your own life. But... what I thought was great is that uh, one move that some dealers started making uh, was instead of killing their enemies, was to instead shoot them in the butt. Because <laughs> 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 they said it was it was not lethal and in some cases more humiliating than actually oh dying from a <laughs> When you stop and think about it actually happening, it's horrific. But the description is hilarious. I, I love the idea that at some point, at some point, there was the first guy to do it, and <laughs> and then after that, like gangs of the surrounding territory had discussions that were like, you know, that's not a bad idea when you think about it. 
Anyway, economics, huh? <laughs> All right, to recap our favorite lessons from Freakonomics. One, most of us are terrible at assessing risk. Two, beware perverse incentives. Three, look out for asymmetries of information. Four, it's hard to be feared when you're made ridiculous. And five, sometimes when you want an orange, you just have to look for the right apple. <laughs> I think that's right from the book.